Hey, you got something for me? Yeah, there was some guy here from Miles Juergens looking for you. They need some barring partners for Apollo Creek. Put me on. Here's the car. Who was it here? About an hour ago. They'll probably look for spawn partners for Creed, you know. I said that before, you dumb dago. You know, I've been coming in for six years. In six years, you've been sticking it to me. I want to know how come. You don't want to know. Yeah, I want to know how come. You want to know? I want to know how. Okay, I'm going to tell you. Because you had the talent to become a good fighter. And instead of that, you became a leg breaker to some cheap second-rate loan shark. So living? It's a waste of life. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of No Happy Endings. Our film this week that we will be discussing, Stephen Benedict and I, is Rocky, 1976 Best Picture winner, the most financially successful film of that year, extraordinary film, basically the most knee-jerk <laughs> boxing film that um, I could throw at you on this podcast about cinema's usage of boxing and boxers. Um, it's really a special film. You know, it's known for the, the Cinderella story, but I think what Stephen Benedict raises, and I fully agree, is the real magic of this story, is the counterpoint to all of that brutality that we see in the final fight and, and the running in the morning and, and trying to reclaim respect and redemption um, that a lot of us can connect to with Rocky, who's 30 and what does he have to show for it, but it's, it's the tenderness that's there. It's remove Adrian from this story. Does it win Best Picture? Um, I don't think so, because I think that that love story is, is ultimately what transcends the sports story. But I think that love story, seeing these two on an ice rink where they need to hold each other up, um, seeing Rocky scream at his trainer for not believing him and believing in him any longer and uh, letting out all this frustration and angst and hopelessness and then a, a, a minute later chasing him down to throw an arm around him and apologizing to him. These are, these are moments that Stallone, I think he captured as good as you can in the writing, but the performance that's there just has so much heart. You can feel the desperation that this guy had. Um, being in Rocky's position just as a movie usher, making no money, with no money in the bank, in his bank account, not being able to feed his dog and having to give the dog up, which he later got back after he made some money off of selling the script. But um, it's not surprising why this has touched people the way it has. It's an incredible film, and I just think there's some unexpected things that maybe Stephen and I were able to talk about uh, that I hope you enjoy. Rocky on No Happy Endings. Stephen, today we are going to embark on the most cliche, inspirational boxing film of all time. Yeah. Sylvester <laughs> Stallone, Rocky Balboa, 1976's best, gro highest grossing movie. Yeah. Um, and looking back, I'm not surprised. That it was go that it grossed so much money, and um, you know that's for the benefit of hindsight from all these years later. Um, but to balance that out, uh, it was also the movie that won Best Picture, but it was also up against Count Them, All the President's Men, Taxi Driver, Network, 
and Bound for Glory. Jesus. And we often say that, you know, Goodfellas was was cheated because Dances with Wolves won the Oscar and Dances with Wolves is a very fine picture and Raging Bull was defeated, was cheated because Ordinary People was. But I think the reason why Rocky isn't dismissed the way Ordinary People or Dance with Wolves is because it's such a fairy tale. It's about a man overcoming, um, you know, such adversity. But I think to be fair, um, the films from that year are the works of art and the movies that really, really inform other filmmakers are all the president's men, taxi driver and network. Um, there's a there's a degree of artistry and storytelling experience um, that Rocky simply doesn't have. But what Rocky has, which none of those films has, is a direct hit to the heart. That's really what it is, you know. Um, but I, I think maybe one of the reasons, one of the beautiful things about the movie is the, the way it reflects the way it was made, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I, I want to just go back a little to what you were saying. I mean, I think Network, Pat, Patty Chayefsky's script is the greatest script that I, I can think of. Like, I mean, it's up there with Robert Bolt, um, with yeah. some of his masterpieces. But Network is one of those films where you just are dazzled at the ideas and the audacity. And, and of course, it only becomes more powerful in terms of, of the shadow it casts as we move into the Trump presidency in the second term. Yeah. Well, hopefully not. <laughs> yeah. But, but also, I mean, yeah, Raging, uh, not rather not Raging Bull, but Taxi Driver, um, you know, the films we, you mentioned, I mean, these are masterpieces for that era, but, but you're right. They don't inspire or reassure or, or lift you off into a fairy tale um, with, the poignancy that Stallone's magical script and performance and having a steady cam really takes center stage in a film for the first time. Uh, you know, this something about this film is just magical holistically, as well as um, individually, like the parts that go into it. It's, it's an extraordinary thing. I mean, Stallone, I think he's done seven sequels since nothing has come close to it. No, um, and you know we're often told that he he spent he wrote the screenplay in three days, but I think as I said to you before, he may have written it in three days, but he spent three months rewriting it and rewriting it. Um, he, he John G. Allison in an interview. Uh, it's amazing when you watch Gene John G. when you watched him in an interview talking about the film. Um, I'm not saying he was repetitive, but it's amazing when you can see it on YouTube. He uses the exact same phrases and terminology every time he's in an interview about the film, which mm. says to me very, very clearly that how clearly he understood the film, how clearly he understood the story. And one of the things he said was that Stallone had actually written about 300 pages in his screenplay. Mm. And so he had scenes for this and scenes for that. And so they were chopping and changing. There were, you know, the scene at the, um, at the ice rink, for example, because they didn't have the money, the budget was so, so, so low. They didn't have the, the, the budget to pay for extras and that's the reason why the ice rink was shut in the story you know so that adds into the fairy tale aspect of of rocky of stallone i mean what was he doing when he wrote the screenplay was he he was working in the theater he was a movie usher making 35 dollars uh a week or a month uh he had 106 dollars in the bank no car he's trying to sell his dog 
because he couldn't afford to feed the dog when he turned down $350,000 for the script, uh, when he finally agreed to, to take the money they offered on the condition that he could star, he bought his dog back. That's actually in the film. But, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that actually is, wasn't that echoed more recently with Mickey Rourke? Uh, sure. with the rest and his the relation that he had with his dog i think one of his maybe his, one of his dogs died or something he yes had his dogs yeah you know it's, it's remarkable the the touchstones that it has fairy tale movie making and real life you know so um it, it does it does resonate in certain ways but what i found amazing about it when i watched it again was um how low-key the whole thing is you yeah know? Um, we have the fanfare Bill Conti score with the with the name of Rocky drifting across the screen, which reminds me of always of Gone with the Wind, the way it just rolls across. And then the music stops and there's no music over the opening credits and there's no design in the opening credits to give us a hint of what's going to follow. And even after the credits, there's still no lift. There's no energy lift in the story. And usually, I mean, we're so accustomed to watching a movie that if it opens quietly, we know it's going to be quiet for the first three minutes, and then there's going to be a shift in key. You know, it's going to go up. But nothing like that happens in 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 Rocky. And the first music cue doesn't doesn't come in until 16 minutes into the movie when he loses his locker. And you know, um, that indicates how down on his luck. He is. And the music there is used to express his internal life. And then I think very, very soon after that, we see Rocky looking at himself in the mirror. And I think that's a very, very important thing that happens in American cinema in the 60s, 70s and 80s. You have especially men looking in the mirror and they're looking at themselves and they're not only looking at themselves, they're looking at themselves in comparison to somebody else. You know, when, when we see him looking at himself in the mirror, um, it, it reminds me of Joe Buck, played by John Voight in Midnight Cowboy. And he has beside his mirror in New York a photograph of Paul Newman playing HUD. Okay. Um, John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever, when he looks at himself in the mirror, he's comparing himself to Al Pacino in Serpica. And so it's men comparing themselves to, you know, movie stars. And so we can see Rocky, and he's nothing near that. <laughs> near that at all and I just think the way it repeatedly throughout the story they play it down and they play it down you know the entire first act of the story passes by before the hook starts which is when we hear only on TV uh, a, a reference to Apollo Creed and then finally after 28 minutes we we hear uh, Apollo Creed has lost the fight has been cancelled has to be cancelled and then he goes on TV and that's a half an hour before the, the clock, sort of the, the plot really, really kicks in. Prior to that, we're looking at a life. We're looking at the neighborhood. We're looking at Adrian, Adrian played by Talia Shire. We're looking at her brother, Paulie, played by Bert Young. And we're looking at people. And it's just remarkable how low key the entire film is until much later in the story. And then, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why it, it, it creeps up on audiences. And I think that's one of the reasons why it was it's one of the reasons why it was a success in the 70s is because it crept up on audiences. They went in and they were waiting around. So, oh, this is incremental as opposed to if the movie were to be made today. And I know Creed parts one and two. But if the, if Rocky were to be presented for the very, very first time today, 
the character of Apollo Creed would be inside the first 10 minutes saying that, he's, that the flight has been cancelled, I'm looking for a replacement. And then Rocky Balboa would have been plucked from obscurity within, for, within the first 10 to 12 minutes. And the, the way it's, it's measured out in the feature from 76 is surprising. You know, I just forgotten it took, it takes so long to get going. And it's, and it is, I mean, as a fairy tale and it's mythology, it's interesting to me, some of the choices that are made there. I mean, this is Philadelphia. This is one of America's major cities yeah. and there's almost no cars on the street outside of his apartment, um, you know, go to a slum, go to Skid Row in any major American city. What you see is endless cars everywhere, right. people staying in cars all the time. This is a very muted, um, yeah. sparse, quiet, depressed kind of um, city. And Stallone, the isolation that's there, uh, and, and yeah, as you say, like, it's it's interesting, like, it made me think a little bit rewatching it of, I love Greek myths, but when you see Hollywood try to do it, it's always so hackneyed how they approach it. I'm thinking like, uh, you know, Brad Pitt in Troy on his way to confronting Hector, you think, how do you fuck up Achilles? Like, Achilles is so interesting, is so compelling, so dynamic. But with Rocky, it's this combination of, I don't believe for a second that Stallone laid out what you're describing, the 29-minute tease, because everything that's, when Stallone had power and is yeah. calling the shots, everything is a theme park ride from the moment you get going. It's a montage immediately in Rocky III. Yeah. It's, it's action, energy, the music, full blast. Like you can tell when Stallone gets to choose what Stallone wants to do. He has one gear, which is like to the floor. <laughs> but combining the elements that he included, which feel very honest, that this is a guy who has literally a paralyzed face, that he couldn't get into The Godfather when he auditioned, despite having an Italian name. I think it's also interesting that he's only half Italian. His mother is not Italian. His dad is a beautician. His mother is in astrology and, and all kinds of weird things professionally. But this is a guy searching for masculinity, searching for ethnic identity um, in a way that I think people have talked about Andy Warhol, that part of what makes Warhol so interesting as an artist is he's always searching for bourgeois America because he never knew what it was. He never came from it. He never saw it. He's yeah. in a, a ghetto in um, Pittsburgh where nobody's yeah. speaking English. So yeah. that aspiration of being very sincere about trying to be bourgeois as one of the weirdest per people ever born is what gives his work such energy. And I right. think with Stallone, there's something quite similar with this in that he recognized if I made Rocky as a movie usher that he was. I mean, Stallone doesn't seem that inventive, particularly with ideas. He draws from what's around him. Um, but transposing his struggle, his degree of rejection, um, never having any success, he's, he starred in some offbeat, horrible porno, which gets renamed the Italian Stallion. Stallone, for those who don't know, is Italian for stallion. Yeah. Um, but... 
he he does push all his chips in with this, recognizing the power of this story and his need to star in it. The filmmakers wanted to have Robert Redford, Ryan O'Neill, Burt Reynolds, James Caan star in it with a bigger budget. Stallone wouldn't budge, held to his integrity. But um, boy, you feel the pathos of not just the Rocky character, but of Stallone. And he is so lovable and it's so hard not to cheer for this guy when he's in pain you feel the pain of uh, the way he talks how stupid he seems yeah um, yeah it's, yeah, and, it's yeah. amazing it's it, yeah it's, it's amazing also because i think that when when the movie was released paul and kale um compares stallone to brando mm-hmm. and I don't want to rag on Pauline Kael, but it's a case, it's an example of a critic who not only wants to be right, but wants to get there first. Mm-hmm. In, in their, so they can say, oh, I told you so. And looking back, clearly, that was not the case. You know, Stallone wasn't acting that character. I'm not saying <laughs> he was completely that character. Sylvester Stallone clearly is an intelligent man. Yeah. You know, you, you simply there couldn't you know there's a there's a wonderful serendipity about so many things about the making of the film, but there's nothing serendipitous about his ability to tell that story, <clears throat> just as you were saying about Andy Warhol. Very intelligent, is able to pull these things together. But I think now I'm gonna go out on a limb here. The, the, the real reason why you know the film was a success. It was a huge success, but I think if you take one element out of the story the movie would know her would be nowhere near as successful as it was and i think the strange thing is if you take that one element out of the story you can tell you can still tell the story and no one would, no one would notice you can take the character of adrian out of the story and you wouldn't notice it hmm. and the movie would not have been anywhere near as successful as it was she was vital she's absolutely crucial because the way stallone wrote his character i think the character of Adrian is dreadfully underwritten. She is not even a cliche. <laughs> She's beyond a cipher, right? That's how thinly drawn she is. And they were very, very fortunate in, in casting Talia Shire, who would come off Godfather Part Two, where she received an Oscar nomination. She received another Oscar nomination for for here. I don't think, respectfully, it was such a great performance, but I think she was nominated because the movie had gained such momentum. But my point here, really. Um, Bryn, is this, is the thing about Rocky's character, despite the fact that he's a boxer, he's a man of considerable and surprising tendons. Yeah. Okay? Um, Abelson jokes about, joked about the fact that, you know, I knew nothing about boxing pictures. I wasn't interested in, spo- in boxing at all, but I was given the script and by page three, the lead character was talking to his turtles. Hey, your old man did pretty good tonight. Why weren't you there, huh? You should have seen me. You guys hungry? No? Here you go. And he says, that's charming right now. Obviously, that's charming, but it gives you an insight as to not only how lonely uh, Rocky is, but, you know, his tenderness and I won't say simplicity, because we all talk to our pets. If you have a pet, we all talk to pets. It doesn't make us simple at all. But my point, though, is that bit by bit, what Stallone does in writing the screenplay is he incrementally reveals just how tender and caring Rocky is. And the first thing he does, obviously, he's very, very interested and keen on this uh, this lady who's working behind the counter 
and wallflower and shrinking violets doesn't cover it. Adrian wants to disappear. She just simply, you know, she's constantly wrapping herself inside cardigan with her glasses and these horn rimmed glasses. And then, and um, while he's still, still alone, sorry, when Rocky's walking home one night, he encounters this young girl. I think her name is Marie. She's standing on the street corner with a whole lot of older guys. She's far too young to be out, I think, with all these older guys. And he says he's going to walk her home. And then he explains to her, you know, the guys in the corner, you may think it's cool that they you, you, you smoke and you make jokes like them and you're going to drink like them and you think they have any regard for you. They don't. They don't have any regard for you. They're, they're going to think you're a whore. I'm using his dialogue exactly. They never took her out for any serious date. Why? But that's the way guys are. They laugh when you talk dirty. They think you're cute. But after a while, you get a reputation. That's it. You get no respect. You understand? You get no respect. I got to use a bad word. Whore. You understand? Whore. You're going to think you're a whore. And he's trying to give her this, this life lesson to say, if you want to get out of the neighborhood, avoid guys like that. And it's a very, very unusual speech that he gives. If it had been a young guy, you would have, it would have made sense because he thinks he's a mentor. But he's telling this young girl, you don't want to be like, you don't want to hang around like guy, guys like that. Despite the fact that Stallone occasionally stops to chat with these guys and has a drink with them. Right. And then for me, the real piece here is, I know this is a very, very long little explanation, but if you just go with me for a second. When he starts, to, when he brings Adrian out on the date, and a couple of days later, Paulie, Adrian's brother, says, you're bawling her. To which Rocky, he shouts, and, hey, don't talk dirty about your sister. And for me, that was one of the key ingredients as to why the movie was a hit, because guys would have, the vast majority of guys would have gone to see this movie because it's about a boxer. But I think the vast majority of women who went to see this movie was because they saw a love story. That's what they were looking at. And they were looking at, you know, Cinderella. They were looking at Beauty and the Beast. And they were looking at this fumbling guy who's not too articulate with his emotions. And he brings out this beautiful woman. Now, you know, you and me, before anybody sees Rocky, we know that Talia Shire is a beautiful looking lady. I mean, whether we've seen Godfather 2 or not, if you just see a photograph of her, you say, beautiful looking lady. But so they really, really went to great lengths to sort of to dress her down. And then her character, strangely, um, on the outside, at least, goes through the greatest transformation because suddenly the next scene, she's wearing a, a red coat with fur trim and she's wearing uh, a beret, a white beret. And then she, you know, her, her transformation is almost like Pretty Woman. It's like she went shopping. We don't see the, the shopping montage. But, um, you know, obviously Rocky has the, the greater internal journey because he sees, he finally realizes that he, he can be a success. But Here's my point, <laughs> Brent, really, really long-winded, I know. As far as I heard, as far as I'm aware, in the 1970s, over 75% of consumer spending in the United States was controlled by women. Hmm. Okay? So it's as simple as this. If you take Adrian out of Rocky, the women don't go to see the movie, and the movie doesn't earn $200 million at the box office or however. It would have been a hit, but it wouldn't have a breakout hit. Just like Saturday Night Fever wouldn't have been a hit if, if, if Travolta had not been in the movie. Women drove those films to be the phenomenal successes that they were. And I think looking back then, what Stallone unfortunately missed was in parts two, three and four, he drifts away from Adrian's arc to the point that she's completely immaterial to the story. And in, in two I mean, two opens up with with the recapitulation of the final ten minutes of part one. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? 
Yeah. So, and I, I think one of the reasons why I was very, very surprised when I watched it again was, wow, if you're looking at it from a completely different perspective, this isn't a boxing picture. This is a love story. And I think women were uh, the female audience in the 1970s were so starved of movies um, uh, marketed directly at them that this is what they took that they saw, oh, this is a nice movie about this guy who's tender to this girl. He's not like your average boxer or the presentation of boxers in the movie. This is, I can see myself up on screen. You know, um, if, if a nice guy comes along, I'm going to listen to him and I hope he takes me out to dinner. And if he does, he's gonna, I know he's going to hold open the gate. Do you remember? He actually takes her out and he holds open the gate for her. Just tiny little moments like that, I think, is the reason why the movie was the breakout enormous box office success that it was. I, I think the story is extraordinarily deftly handled by both Stallone, because as you say, he's so tender with her. And for those of us, I mean, rewatching it, I was struck by, I remember a girl that I fell for, and, and she kind of similar to Adrian, just worked at a little place and just bit by bit, she was very mousy and invisible hiding behind glasses and just was insecure. And after five or six times of going there just to buy a cup of coffee or something, she was growing on me. I was just noticing she's quite beautiful behind all this, but she doesn't know it. And that itself is uh, a, an ingredient of why she's working in my on my imagination on right. some level. And I remember dating her, all my friends saying, what do you see in this girl? We don't see it. And about three months later, the hair had grown out a little bit. She was a little more confident. And they were like, she's really beautiful. So there's something, <laughs> there's something similar that I feel with Adrian that I found very moving. And with Stallone also that when they, I mean, to me, the most powerful scene of the film, which sets up the ending, of course, the magnificent ending is getting that skating rink where both of these people, like basically everybody in the film uh, in Rocky's life, um, are on slippery ice <laughs> with either no skates, you know, but they're slippering ar slipping around. And the only way these people can stand up is if they hold each other up. Yeah. And some asshole is yelling at them. You only have 10 minutes. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's so embarrassing and pathetic and pitiful, and yet between these two people is something transformative that is blossoming about, you know, we may be alone in this world, but I, I'm all in for you. I'm 100% in for you. Exactly as you are is how I want you. And, yeah. you know, to allow an American audience in 1976 to cheer for the loser because they don't care that he lost the fight with the stand-in for Muhammad Ali. The important thing is, is the declaration of love between these two misfits. Yeah. I don't know how he did it. I don't know how he came up with it conceptually or how it could be pulled off more artfully. I mean, this is a film, the budget was so small that the most, the largest allocation of money that they spent was not any setting or event, it was the makeup to show how beaten up Stallone <laughs> and and uh, Apollo Creed are. And uh, then you have that scream, which I think in movie history, obviously it's drawing from Stella, but it, 
I I don't feel as much emotion with Brando screaming for Stella because he's just such an awful person. But when Rocky screams out for Adrian and you see her squeaking in the crowd, calling out his name as loud as she can, she's still meek, Rocky, 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 and they find each other. Yeah. It's just one of the, I think, one of the most special moments in, in cinematic history. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, by that stage, they had literally hit the cue with the right note, with the right instrument at the right time. You know, yeah. it was Bill Cosby's score. But, you know, um, just bringing it back to what you're saying about Adrian's character, I don't think it's not, I, I think it's her, her sense of self is actually very, very intricately entwined with Rocky's sense of self. It's not that she doesn't know she's beautiful. She doesn't believe it. Uh, and he doesn't believe that he's capable either until a circumstance arrives and presents itself to him, just as she really didn't believe that she was beautiful until he arrived at the doorstep and kept on knocking because her brother is always running her down. And, you know, if you're told you're, you're ex, you come to believe that you're ex because everyone's telling you. And it, it's interesting also, you were mentioning the, the connection with Brando, and I'm going to just shift it away from Streetcar for a second. And um, there are one or two moments that you draw, draw us back to On the Waterfront. Um, and the funny thing is that at the end of um, Rocky, or sorry, not at the, not the end, but it, it, their ice skating sequence, they created the most, one of the most beautiful cliches. You know, it's a cliche now, but they invented the cliche with the ice skating, right? Yeah. And on the waterfront, you know, broke up in so much ground, but invented a ton of cliches. And one of them was obviously the Beauty and the Beast story in, in sort of uh, the, the crime gangster picture uh, milieu. And there's a scene in On the Waterfront when Terry breaks down the door to, 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 to get to Edie. And then they become into, they start kissing and embrace each other and they slip to the floor. The very same thing happens in Rocky. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he uh, he doesn't burst through the door. Paulie breaks down the door to get to his sister, to Adrian, because he's so annoyed. But later in Rocky's apartment, um, he does a he does a quick um, reference to Streetcar because he takes off his sweater and you see his 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 white vest underneath, which is straight out of Streetcar Named Desire. And um, then he approaches um, Adrian and they kiss and they go down to the floor which is what happens in On the Waterfront. But what I, again, this reinforces my belief that the movie was a hit because the, the female audience is going to see it. That scene, when he kisses her, the camera never goes on Stallone. Avelson keeps the camera on Adrian because the scene is about her. Right. And that, that's where the audience can go. At, that's where the, I think, I firmly believe that the, the, the women in the audience were saying, I can identify now. This is, this is my scene. This is where I can find myself in the story. And so they're watching a love story while the other Part of the, the other, the guys in the audience are looking at a boxing picture. You know I mean? mm. Yeah, no, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. And I, you know, it, I mean, I think even what's that Nick Hornby book? I don't know if it's in the book or in the film of uh, High Fidelity, yeah. where there's mention of there'd be some impropriety in sleeping with certain women you know, who are destined to be married to, to the guy they meet in high school. And yeah. the immediate comparison is it would be like somebody sleeping with Talia Shire other than Rocky. <laughs> and, and that's really interesting to me because it, it, it it's a good line, but it also speaks to something indelible that Stallone created with her character is 
I can't imagine her being with anybody other than Rocky. Yeah. Who else could she be with other than him? And that is a, that's something that we don't think about. I remember like George Orwell made this observation about the difference between Dickens and Shakespeare is that you can't imagine Dickensian characters saying anything other than what they've already said because they don't have any conscience consciousness. Right. Whereas right. Hamlet, you could engage at any point in his life if he you know lived to be a, a thousand. If that's a growing consciousness, all of the characters are alive. And there is just something about Rocky, and Stallone was able to do this. I mean, I think I agree with what you said about Pauline Kale trying to get there first with Brando. I mean, I think he's channeling Brando in, I do think that Stallone has a kind of sensitivity and vulnerability that remind me of Brando in just that they affect you. Yeah. What, what he feels vulnerable to about feeling insecure um, or inferior or less than, you, yeah. you know that Stallone has been slighted a lot in his life, that he's been dismissed. Yeah. And so when he's channeling that about nobody cares about him at the boxing gym, yeah. he loses his locker, or as soon as he gets the opportunity and gets on TV that his old trainer want, comes to his apartment and wants a wants an opportunity. I'm going to be your manager. You follow that, do you? Floyd said I don't need no manager. But you can't buy what I'm going to give you. I mean, I've got pain and I've got experience. Well, i got pain i got experience, too. Now, listen, kid. Hey, look, hey, Mick. What? Look, I need your help about 10 years ago, right? 10 years ago? Right. You never helped me. No. You didn't care. You feel that rage of, yeah. you know, now now I'm of value simply because there's dollars attached to this opportunity. But you you have thought I was worthless at every moment where you could think I had some value. And that was a great scene actually because he's in the room on his own when he roars that. Burgess Meredith is halfway down the down the steps down the stairs. He turns and looks back up, and you hear Stallone literally screaming into the void. I wouldn't say it's King Lear. I'm getting the wrong Shakespearean reference, but there's one character surely within Shakespeare's universe where a character, a young man, um, yells, looking for his destiny, asking the world to listen because he never thought I was up to, I was capable of anything. Yeah. Um, and it, it, I think that was very, very well handled. Um, and again, you know, coming back to, to the type of character that um, one of the reasons why we feel for for um, Rocky is because. You know, he's, he's essentially, um, uh, isn't he, a, a, re a debt collector for the, the mob, okay? Yeah. The, the loan yeah, shark. Yeah, he's the muscle for a loan shark. That's right. And it's funny because the guy who plays the loan shark is Willie Chichi, who was in The Godfather 1 and 2. He played the button man for Michael in, in Godfather 2. Right. And then he turns, he turns against, um, he, no, he doesn't, he's asked to give, um, give testimony at the, the Senate hearings. But he tells Rocky to go and break this guy's thumbs, and Rocky doesn't. That's our first introduction to him doing what he's supposed to do, and he that immediately lets us know, yo, okay, he's he's a nicer guy. 
And so it, his, his gentility or his tenderness is multifaceted. It's not just towards Adrian. It's a guy who's down in this look. It's a guy who can't pay his debt. And it's also to a teenage girl who shouldn't be out standing on the street corner with these guys who have no regard for her whatsoever. And so in a way, I think Rocky, the character, is a little bit like um, a chivalrous knight from the Middle Ages. Hmm. As you're saying, you know, car- he's carving it from stone. Is that, and that's why Adrian responds to him, um, because he, he, she can recognize the decency in him because he's not crude in, in her presence the way Paulie is. I think Paulie's a really interesting character. You know, yeah. he's very, very low self esteem. So many of the characters do in the story, you know? Um, a, a, little bit, a little bit like uh, Fat City, but. The, the trajectory is uphill and the characters are definitely in the ascendancy in this one. Yeah, I agree with you about Polly. I mean, it seems like Polly, I think I read in one review of this that the only time Polly is attacking people is just to inform them, to remind them of his own grief yeah. and his own pain. Like yeah. that's really the only note that he knows how to operate with, with people because he's kind of given up everywhere else. Actually, the same thing happens throughout two and three. Right, right. You know, he's, I think, I, I'm getting confused which film it is. It's, I think it's in the second one that he wanders through an amusement arcade. And in he, he sees, um, or maybe it's in the third one, he sees a, a pinball machine and it's got Rocky emblazoned on it. He, he breaks it, he smashes it. And then he confronts um, Rocky himself. And you're absolutely right. It's, you know, it's, it's, um, the way he expresses himself is through frustration and um, lack of self-esteem and self-resentment in a way. But just, 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 just to move it on to what you were saying about um, how the film builds, I think one of the, the reasons why the, the very, very famous scene where he runs up the steps works so beautifully, not only today, but was, was such a surprise for audiences back in 1976 was because, as exactly as you said, the use of Steadicam. Now, I'm not saying for a second that audiences said, oh, yeah, that's a Steadicam. The thing is, for the very, very first time in cinematic history, we were able to move up the steps with a character in pace with him. And there was no say, you know, the camera seemed to be floating, not in the way a tracking shot does. And I firmly believe the audience subliminally were responding to this moment of movement, this liberation, advancement, achievement, um, ascendancy, because the the visual articulation of that moment had never been done in this way before through the Steadicam. And that's one of the reasons why it works so brilliantly. When he turns and he lifts up his arms, the camera is moving completely freely, independently from him. It's not like it's moored or tied to him like it would be a tracking shot. The Steadicam movement is so liberating. That's the reason why that scene works. Yeah. Not yeah. only because they, they chose the right moment for the, the, the scene. And also another reason why I think that scene works is because we've seen him try to get up the steps before and he failed. Yeah. You know, and so the Steadicam, it, it's like Abelson chose that one moment to use that new camera device. And I don't know how much it cost them. It wouldn't have been cheap, but he, he spent the money really, really well for that fantastic moment. And the music is beautifully done. It reaches this fantastic crescendo. And finally, then we're ready for the fight. Do you know, we're, it's almost as if everything now is in place for the, um, 
for the for the final showdown. And and I think also, I mean, a couple of things that Stallone, the writing touches, and some of them are wordless, but uh, they're ones that, that that really get to me more than the bigger moments. It's the quiet moments that he finds. I mean, we were talking earlier about Stallone is trying to cathartically dispel this lifetime of angst and frustration with Mickey, his his trainer, who's given up on him and who is now seeking to be a part of this this great opportunity to fight the the Muhammad Ali Apollo Creed character mm. um but after Stallone rags him out and expresses such horrific frustration at just where he lives the best he can do smells and i i was reading yeah. behind the scenes that um where he was living did smell there was a like a, t- a t- plumbing problem so okay. That was drawing from real frustration that where you live smells and there's nothing you can do about it. But after you see Mickey wander off, old, dejected, no more opportunities in his life, that Stallone, when you think the scene is going to end there, there's a few seconds of just this quiet, lonely, isolated, desolate street of you just watching an old man walk off into the rest of his life. And then and then you see Stallone like a little boy chase after him and apologize. Yeah. And that happens silently. And it happens silently, and he puts his arm around him. And yeah. there's something, I don't know how he does it, about the way Stallone does it that, I don't know, takes you to moments that you, you should have done that with somebody that you know, or somebody you know if it had a person. Yeah, it's I, I I can't think of very many actors that are just able to nail those things into um, you know I know that Stallone spent a lot of time in museums studying sculpture, studying paintings. There's a a Caravaggio painting inside his apartment of um, the calling of Saint Matthew, where you have. Uh, you have Christ pointing to Matthew from obscurity to enter the light, exactly as Apollo Creed is asking Rocky to do. Right, 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 yeah. And and I think Stallone is somebody where his face as a canvas for, for human emotion um, is very special. And part of it is it's so unexpected, this weird face. This is a bit more of a fleshy Stallone than the steroid-ridden, human growth hormone-ridden action hero. Um, This is not a perfect physical specimen. He's a little guy. He has a paralyzed face from forceps um, tearing him out of his mother. Um, He's damaged. And somehow those eyes that he has and uh, the way he looks at people, it's like maybe he just endured enough rejection where the pathos of this character and the pathos of Stallone that shines through has, has just a really powerful connection um, to, to viewers. I mean, to a general audience, I mean, the way America metabolized this, but also just individual people. Like I find the little moments in this that Stallone finds as an actor and as a writer really get to me in ways that very few films do. Well, I think, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think what we're, <clears throat> I think what we're really saying here is the movie, the most memorable moments, the most touching moments in the film are not the fight at the end. You know, right. 
the, the fight is, you know, it, it, that's when the movie rips into fifth gear. But the other smaller moments are the surprising moments that we've actually forgotten. And that's what I was saying to you. Um, the, the movie creeps up on you incrementally, bit by bit. It's the small little touches. And as you said, Stallone's eyes, he's got puppy dog eyes. Yeah. But, you know what I mean? And if they had cast, if the producers had really railroaded this one and said, you're taking the 350000 or we're not making the movie at all, I'm going to ask Redford. <clears throat> you can be rest assured that there would have been a, a, a different director would have been brought in immediately. The budget would have gone up. But also those moments where he, he runs after Burgess Meredith, where Rocky is supposed to run after Burgess Meredith, that would not have been done without dialogue. He would have gone for a reverse tight shot to, to show them the camera would have been placed on the other end of the street. And then Redford would have apologized because Redford, you know, I think he's a very, very fine uh, director. And he has very refined cinematic tastes. Um, but he, as, a, as an actor, he always had to be the nice guy. If, oh. there was, if there was a glimmer of darkness, we have to see it was only for a moment because he was doing it to d- deliberately set up the apology. I think out of the list that you mentioned of the, the actors that uh, were considered, James Caan would have been the closest, but hmm. he would have been completely wrong as well. You know, uh, I think the the, the, physiolo- the physiology of Stallone is really, really important. To say, but also, I think in relation from the first movie to the second and third, his skin is very, very milky in the first movie. It's very pale. Yes. And he's really hitting the sunbed and hitting the beach by two and three, which is understandable because, you know, he, he's now out of the, the very straightened circumstances which he was living. But even as an actor, I think that um, the... The, the, the climax for, for Stallone really was Rocky because after the, 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 the disappointing thing in two and three is when I was watching it, there's little glimpses. Now, go with me on this. It's going to sound strange. Little glimpses of the Godfather movies because Stallone is trying to say something profound about the sport, about fame and success, how, how it changes you, finances, corruption, of you know, fight fixing and all that sort of stuff. But he because he's not... a a director of any particular talent, he fails miserably to to nail those points that, at all. And so, as you said, he he only knows one move or or, or one tone and one gear, and it's montage and it's fight. <laughs> yes. No. I mean, I I I am amused by Stallone going to town to you know what Rambo is apart from a fir- the first film, which was very good you know, very interesting territory to mine Mm. to what he wants to turn it into is just this endless celebration and sort of, uh, I mean, I've started referring to it as a verb, like a Louis CKing where it's just, I need to masturbate in front of my audience to about myself. (laughs) And and, that's the review. But it's a common it's a common trope. I mean, almost every Tom Cruise movie is just a celebration of how absolutely incredible Tom Cruise is. Yeah. yeah. I don't. I. I mean, I watch him, and I'm I'm always struck by. I think his sexual orientation is just himself. I don't yeah. think anything else seems to arouse him beyond smiling and grinning at himself. And Stallone has something of that where. You know, the plastic surgery that he gets from Rocky 1 to Rocky 2. I mean, Rocky, he's already 30 years old in the film. I think the film really benefited from 
how guerrilla style it was. This is a film that was only shot in 28 days by John Avelson. Um, they had no money to really do anything. So when he's running through the, the market of Philadelphia, those are not extras. Those are just people thinking, what the hell is going on here? Who is this guy? <laughs> they're, they're turning their heads innocently. Yes. Yeah. And, and it allows... I mean, from the isolation moments to the feeling of populism that Stallone is inspiring these people in a way that Stallone absolutely can inspire people. Yeah. You know, I mean, even even the silly films of Rocky Four. I mean, distilling the Cold War to these absurd cartoon tropes, um, nonetheless, is a hell of a lot of fun. There's something really fun in getting into the way Stallone sees the world. Because it's just basically professional wrestling. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, you were saying that um, we, we can read so much or we we read so much into his face because his face is almost like a canvas, a blank canvas. And I think in the second, third and fourth pictures, um, they're, actually, they're actually meaningless. The only meaning that comes, that can be attributed to the film is the meaning that we supplant or we, we place on it because of the era in which it was made. It's a 1980s picture. Yeah. You know, especially, you know, uh, the, the fourth one with, when it, it distills, as you said, the, the, the Cold War down to just a ring. Um, and it's also, you know, uh, it's like as you're talking about Tom Cruise, we look at Top Gun. It's an empty film. The only meaning that we can get from the film is the meaning that we attribute to it. And, you know, again, as going back to the Tom Cruise thing, I think it was hilarious where you're talking about his only sexual attraction is towards himself. It, do you, did you did you see that the science fiction movie he the dystopian science fiction picture Oblivion? Sure, but sure. There's, there's multiple case, there's multiple versions of Tom Cruise. He's got two of himself there, and which is the ultimate Tom Cruise picture. He's starring opposite himself. You know? Right. Well, no, and I mean, I mean, Stallone's Stallone's narcissism. I mean, in a way, it's sort of like a. a um, a subtler version of sort of what we see with Trump. It's just that Stallone wants maximum credit for everything as a total auteur. And he's dropping seven syllable words in interviews just to make sure you don't confuse him with Rocky. I'm actually a very sophisticated filmmaker and Pauline Kael has, has compared me to Marlon Brando, but Stallone is pretty one note as a guy. It's a note that definitely America was willing to shovel billions of dollars to be to be a part of, yeah. but it's pretty one note, um, except where I think he is just an ingredient in in a story that the way he was used in this film to such superb artistic effect. In a way, he never was since. I mean, he he's somebody I remember Copland where that was getting this buzz. Oh my God, Sylvester Stallone is back. He's giving an yeah. Academy Award winning or worthy performance sort of thing. The only, the, the performance there, as far as I could tell was, it wasn't awful. That doesn't make it great. Yeah, I know that's, yeah, exactly. And that's a case of the marketing men, uh, the marketing division bullying critics and bullying the public into, if you tell them, if you tell them this is X, they're going to believe it's X. Right. Just as you're saying about Natalia Shire's character, Agent, if she's told that she is X, she starts to believe it. But I think, you know, you're hitting the nail on the head. You're talking about how the, so much money was shoveled into this uh, this franchise. And I think in a way, in, and in, 
typical fairy tale fashion. It came out it came out at just at the perfect time. It was the bicentenary of American 70, from 1776. And America had been through a cathartic 10 years, or at least 13, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, the assassination of uh, Martin Luther King, the assassination of Robert Kennedy, Malcolm X, Kent State, you know, the, the, um, the complete disaster in Vietnam, the impeachment of the president, all these scandals. And all the president's men comes up and you know, repeats the depression, right? And right. taxi driver comes up and repeats the degradation. The network comes up and it's brilliant satire and Bound for Glory is set in the depression. But the one movie that makes you feel good about yourself or for American audiences to feel good is Rocky. And that's the simple reason why it, it, uh, it made the amount of money that it did that year. Uh, I think it would, and inadvertently, perhaps just like Star Wars, it, it paved the way for a complete shift in the 1980s, uh, sequelitis. And mm. um, the, the auteur theory was was parked to the left. It was the producers who ran the show. Um, and because of that, the movies really didn't have anything individualistic, individ, any individual point of view to say. It was more of a conglomerate. And so the movies in the 80s and increasingly with the Rocky pictures, they have no meaning unless we apply a meaning to them. But having said that, though, the reason uh, why it was successfully revitalized was because they shifted the perspective. I mean, you know, in our discussions, you're always asking, let's tell the story from another point of view. Creed broke that, sort of discovered that paradigm, said, let's tell it from a different angle. Right. Well, and I, I think also you have to, to look at the value of this film and sort of attribute credit where it's deserved. Where did Stallone go after this and draw from the same well? Um, you know, not, not, he never really did it again. Like this was the zenith of his career, artistically, certainly. Maybe commercially he had some more successful things with, you know, dross like the Expendables or whatever. But if you look at John Avildsen going forward with this, he basically remakes Rocky with the Karate Kid yeah. um, and creates very similar effect. With, yeah, yeah. with, you know, incredible moments with, you know, something like Ralph Macchio, who does nothing after it, or yeah. the Mr. Miyagi character, you know, yeah. he shifts the perspective, really, to yeah. to the mentor, to the, the supporter, in yeah. a way that works magnificently, not an accident that film ends on the face of the mentor nodding yeah. in approval at his pupil succeeding, against all odds. But, um, you know, that movie, where did that come from in terms of just blowing away American audiences with basically complete unknowns in the whole thing? It's yeah. um, where you just don't see Stallone able to pivot from Rocky to do anything other than becoming a, a super action hero. Um, well, you know, in, in a way, <laughs> he peaked too soon. Right, his career, and you know, I'm gonna. We're Pauline Kale compared him to a little bit like Brando. Let's go, let's go completely crazy. Sylvester <laughs> Stallone's career was like Orson Welles, his first movie. It's <laughs> <His laughs> absolutely fun, absolute phenomenon, and he he struggles in the in the in the shadow of all that. But you're absolutely right. I mean, I think Abelson, again, going back to what I was saying about Abelson when he was talking about the film, he re if you see him in an interview, he repeats the same things again and again. 
in the same rhythm and the same vocabulary all the time. So he knew really what this movie was. He knew precisely what the type of story he was telling. And clearly when he was hired in to make um, The Karate Kid, he knew precisely Ralph Macchio's character, you know, and he knew precisely that casting Paparita as Mr. Miyagi, this is going to sound a little bit problematic, it's Yoda. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Yoda and, for sure. And, and and so Burgess Meredith was was Mickey because Yoda had yet to appear in Star Wars. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so um, when it just shows that Abelson was a very very competent director who knew story very very well, and was able to take this three hundred page script and say that scene we're going to do because that scene works. And okay, well, I know we have to do a bit of a rewrite because we don't have the we don't have the money for the the audience. And you're talking about the quiet moments. What I really really liked is the night before the battle. You know, it's almost Shakespearean where you see Richard the Third in his tent contemplating the night before the battle. In the night before the, the the fight, you see you see Rocky in the huge auditorium, and there's a beautiful silence. And he looks up and he sees that they got the poster wrong because he's wearing the wrong, the wrong color shorts and the promoter's there. And he says, look, they got the color wrong on the, on the shorts. And the promoter says, it doesn't matter if you're going to put on a great show. What brings you here tonight? Mr. Jurgens, the poster's wrong. What do you mean? Well, I'm wearing white pants with a red stripe. It doesn't really matter, does it? I'm sure you're going to give us a great show. And even then, Rocky is being put down because he's only there to be a financial commodity. You know, he's going to sell the show. And that gives us another reason for us to hope that he's going to to win or at least survive. And and I think also just finding those moments, as you were saying, uh, yeah. the teasing out of the ascension of Rocky to get that inspirational feeling. I mean, like, like Nabokov said about the true measure of any story is, is not your brain or your heart. It's your spine feeling those tingles. Um, <laughs> this, this film has so many of those moments, small and big, but the big ones, you know, like even discovering the name of going to fly now as he's marching up the steps yeah. was just the director saying, well, Stallone's going to fly now. <laughs> and that, that becomes right. the name. I didn't know um, that. That's and, and it's interesting also that the original script, Stallone had it being quite a lot darker, that Mickey was a bitter racist trainer, and yeah. the film ended with Rocky throwing the fight after realizing he didn't want to be a part of professional boxing. Well, if these were the choices, yeah, um, yeah. I, I just... I mean, I thought the ending is one of the the most brilliant strokes of the film, that it moves into the love story. And I have to think that that's more the director's sensibility, which, again, you see in Karate Kid, that the love story is really between student and mentor yeah. and them trusting each other despite yeah. their fears. And um, I wonder, I mean, this is such an interesting Interesting, the impact this has on the culture. I mean, to the degree where Sylvester Stallone, I want to say about 10 years ago, was inducted into the Boxing Hall of Fame without a single punch thrown as an amateur or a punch taken as a professional. The contribution of this fantasy and fairy tale was such that um, 
they just open the doors to to a fictional character, whereas a lot of real life people who nearly died in the ring or became champion were nowhere near getting access to that honor. Um, I wonder, you know, now that we're, geez, this is 24, 44 years ago and seven sequels later, uh, you know, in the first boxing film to win an Academy Award, a lot of people see this as arguably the greatest sports film ever. What do you see as the legacy of this? And then let's get into some of the categories. Well, um, certainly with regard to potency, I mean, you said there, Stallone being inducted into the Boxing Hall of Fame, which I think is an absolute travesty. I really do. I think it's, I, I, I'm, I'm fully short of calling it a disgrace. You know, it's a smack in the face. It's a knockout punch. It's a kick. It's a punch below the belt, as you said, to any boxer who has really put their heart and soul on the sweat and blood and tears on the canvas. It's just, it's an appalling thing, you know? Um, it's like a certain president being nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. It's just, <laughs> it's not, it's just not right. Um, but the amazing thing is, as you say, the little moments and the huge moments as well, you know, we we talk about um, if if someone were to, sell, to yell out, Stella, we know exactly what the movie is. If I go, boom, boom, you know it's Jaws. If I go, eep, 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 you know it's Psycho. And if I go, Adrian, you've, you've got that moment. And it's, it's, it's incredible the way certain moments in films, and they've always got to be hit films. It can't be just a, a sort of a cult movie that they... Um, that they just distill the essence of the story. And that is a cry from the heart at the end of the film. Yeah. That he's, he's calling out. And it's a little bit, it's a complete inversion, actually, of what we saw in Fat City, where Tully is fighting to win back the woman he loves. You see the photograph. But he, never, he can't cry from the heart, but it, it's Stallone at the end nailed it. <laughs> and it's brilliant. Um, but in terms of its impact, well, we can see the the its impact was huge because of the amount of money it earned at the box office, the amount of sequels that were made, and fil- similar films made in its wake, the Karate Kid being an obvious example. But I mentioned Star Wars for a second, and Star Wars is considered to be the movie that, you know, and Jaws, the movies that broke open the, the summer blockbuster and rewrote, rewrote the future of, of, of Hollywood. Rocky is in there, you know, um, because uh, the template is there for the Cinderella story, uh, the no hoper, the, the outsider coming through, and it comes to without Rocky, there's no Rambo. Right. And without Rambo, where is Ronald Reagan's line where he says, "The next time I know what to do." When he says, "You know, it wasn't, it wasn't, didn't Reagan famously say when he said, I was looking at Rambo last night, and if we have another situation like Vietnam, I know what to do." You know, right. <laughs> you know, so. Um, Without Rocky, there's, there's uh, I wouldn't say cinema would necessarily be a poorer place, but financially it would be a poorer place, especially considering the amount of money that the movie took in for United Artists, the studio that made the film. Because unfortunately, United Artists went bust five years later, having made Heaven's Gate, where they backed the hills, they backed the auteur. Right. And they lost a ton of money there, while the rest of Hollywood was turning their back and and uh, turning away from the director towards the producer, and I'm talking about George Lucas, the producer, not George Lucas, the director. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Well, and I, I also wonder how much, like, we did Million Dollar Baby. This is another film where the the conception of it is is somebody politically that, that is very conservative. Stallone, his brother, is extraordinarily vocal 
on social media as a conservative. Um, it, it really does espouse a lot of conservative values that resonate with a huge segment of the audience. And I think even, you know, where mostly what you are getting from Hollywood is going to be very liberal. Mm. Um, this is really wanting to affirm the familiar, the cliche um, of of what conservative white America, you know, a, a white guy transcending a black champion. Yeah. <laughs> you know, coming from the bottom, anybody can do it if you give them the opportunity. Like, there's a lot of tropes there yeah. that is just sort of a conservative's wet dream of, of yeah. American values that um, are reduced to something sort of comically simple. But, I mean, again, it's the ethos of professional wrestling, which, again, is an incredibly conservative-leaning um, ethos for for Americans. I mean, yeah. it's from Vince McMahon and his wife are both diehard conservatives. His wife actually, I think, is a senator, um, right. huge supporters of Trump. But I, I always found that interesting because as somebody very liberal, there is something very amusing and engaging and interesting about how they want to enjoy themselves in fantasy. That's quite different from maybe liberals wanting to send a message with this story about poverty or, you know, where, you know, any other sort of trope to deal with the time, yeah. um, as I think like those other films that were up for best picture are really negging at the culture, at American culture, media, yeah. uh, the death of the American city with taxi driver, the isolation and stuff. Whereas here it's sort of, no, you just need your opportunity. Hang in there. And if you're in America, anything can work out if you just stick with it. Sort of, you know, the the, the conservative Cinderella story definitely seems to be something that Stallone tapped into that probably um, was a very restricted voice in terms of Hollywood letting it out. Yeah. I mean, Apollo Creed's speech is the land of opportunity. You know, the first act of the movie, there is no opportunity at all, at all for Rocky. Um, um, but just coming back to your point there, Bryn, about the reassurance of the the, the politics of the film, the, the reassurance of the Cinderella aspect, the fairy tale aspect. There's a very good writer on cinema, a guy called Robert Kalker, and he calls it the politics of recuperation. These types of films, especially Spielberg and Lucas's films in the late 70s, mid to late 70s and early 80s. And I think it's interesting that um, in actual fact, four years before Reagan made it to the White House, this is um, a, a, this movie almost heralds the arrival of Reagan in the year. In actual fact, I may be incorrect that Jimmy Carter would have been elected. Would that be right in '76? He would have 76. been he would have been voted in in '76, and the, the the public, although they they vote in. Um, I can understand them completely voting in a Democrat in the wake of what Nixon had done to the country and America's standing in the world internationally. I can understand why uh, people would have voted for a Democrat, but audiences, when they saw the fantasy and the fairy tale, and as Calker calls the politics of recuperation, they're going for this very conservative presentation. And I think there's one or two little points um, hinted at uh, the regard or perhaps the disregard for Apollo Creed's character, they have him dress up as George Washington at the end. Yeah. And he comes in and he's actually, he, uh, 
Apollo Creed is made out to be a bit of a buffoon, I think, in that scene. He's worried about his hair, right? And um, I think if you're if you're looking there, if, if you're in the audience in 1976, um, the, the choice of him dressing up as George Washington is to turn you against Apollo Creed, absolutely, because here is this guy, significantly black, um, mocking um, one, of the fa- one of the founding fathers of the country. And um, in the second movie, um, Apollo then becomes Rocky's friend. But by the third film, having established, quote, the good black Americans, we've got Mr. T coming through as a very, very angry black man oh, and yeah. to destroy him. And his iconography, he wears a Mohican haircut and his, his, the earrings that he has are feathers. So they're actually skewering two ethnic groups at the same time. Which is, you know, people may read, be, people may, may be saying I'm reading too much into the story there or into the presentation. Uh, everything happens for a reason in a movie. You know, there's everything is, is argued. And, and, I, and I'd say go, I mean, going to the fourth film, yeah. you have during the montage, the Russians cheat. They're miserable. They take steroids. Yeah. They'll do anything to win. Rocky is... Um, you know, just mashed potatoes and gravy go, goes up in, <laughs> to the winter mountains That's to right. chop wood. Well, he's look, pure and innocent, and he's Wagnerian. Brin, That's what it is. It's Wagnerian. He's up in the mountains. <laughs> right. So you know, and by extension, you know, America is good and about freedom, and Rocky can can win the Cold War for America because he represents the everyman American. And yeah. it's it's like wow, and this is from Stallone, who is taking every drug known to man to look the way he is at forty eight years old or yeah. whatever. Yeah, it's uh, astounding uh, the sanctimony and hypocrisy, and, and just glib oversimplicity of it. And yet, as professional wrestling, it's fantastic. Yeah. I think the pity is, though, that we're what, maybe what we're trying to say is that he polluted his own, the essence, the purity of his own story. You know, um, Rocky works very well on its own. And had they left it at that, it would be very, very well regarded. But the, the more um, sequels they made, they, they just pushed it downhill. Well, and I, and I think that that's something that Stallone plays a lot with. Obviously, yeah. Rocky... Uh, he was sued by Chuck Wepner, who fought Muhammad Ali in a very similar situation to Rocky versus Apollo Creed, um, yeah. probably stepped on the toe of Ali when he landed a blow, but Ali fell down as a result of either slipping or being punched lightly. He was okay. not hurt. Um, so you have that scene depicted in Rocky, where he knocks down Creed early in the fight. Yeah. And... And Chuck Wepner was known as the Bayon Bleeder, so he was bleeding all over the canvas. Rocky, of course, is, um, you know, in, remarkably done up in terms of the damage that he sustains and yeah, overcomes yeah. and endures and everything. Um, but you have Rocky entering into the, the boxing pantheon as one of the great North Stars. I mean, like a, a kind of Greek myth of of what boxing can be inspires a legion, a gener, excuse me, a generation of boxers to get involved. Okay. Um, still is this kind of North star for a certain kind of, uh, blue collar striving, um, born American. 
Right. Um, probably not African American or Latino, but probably a, a white ethnicity, <laughs> you know, demographic. Yeah. Um, which which now is kind of comical because boxing is predominantly a Latino and African American yeah. sport. It's no longer yeah. a domain for very many white athletes, yeah. which which is where the UFC has been so politicized right. as, as okay. a refuge for white America. So yeah, I wonder with Rocky. It, I mean, let's get into some of the categories just to close this out because I think that there's some interesting ones to to touch upon. Seven sequels after the original, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is kind of amazing because Rocky was 30 at the time of this film being released, so he's really getting up there. Um, anybody's perspective, if we moved it from Rocky's, would be interesting to delve into. I mean, we were talking earlier about The Karate Kid. Now on Netflix, there's a very successful series built on the nemesis of Danny LaRusso, um, where it's told from the perspective of the Cobra Kai star student. Could we, could we have told this story from Apollo Creed's perspective a little more, or Adrian, or... Well, yeah, I... I yeah, um, and without being facetious, Brent, I think the movie wouldn't have, the story wouldn't be anywhere near as interesting or anywhere near as potent. I think they told it from the right perspective. It's, you know, you were talking about the Winnie Cooper phenomenon, and I think with Wonder Years, it would be much better had they had the daring to tell it from Winnie's point of view. I don't think you could actually improve the story of Rocky by telling it from another person's point of view. You know, I think, um, what would the lesson be if Apollo Creed, if you tell it from Apollo's point of view? You know, um, I don't think it adds to the it adds to the meaning of the, the story, the potency of it. Um, Adrian, yeah, I'm, but again, I'm not fully convinced. Um, Mickey or even Paulie, I, I I think they they got the right angle with this one. I, I can't see any other any other character giving us greater insight or greater greater emotional satisfaction in the story. I can't I can't. Do you? Can you see anyone? No, no, I think they handled the balance perfectly. It was just enough of each of the secondary characters that they stopped being a type, or even if they were a type, it was one of the better depictions of a type that I've seen. Yeah, that's right. Even even the loan shark, you know, Joe Spinelli. Yeah. He's really a, a nasty loan shark. You know what I mean? He's just, he's not a big loan shark. He's just the movie's Lone Shark and he's not going to he's not really posing that much of a danger or a physical threat to people we only hear about it but we don't see it yeah um, most iconic moment of the film for you well there's three and it's take your pick it's ice skating it's up the steps or Adrian would you agree yeah it's yeah I mean outside of that just the arm around Mickey after he lets out all that rage, sure. uh, yes, yeah. very moving to me. But yeah, but you're, I mean, you said it earlier. It's the the tenderness of Stallone and the character of Rocky is so unexpected mm -hmm. and balances out so many other things in this film to just create a palette that's all its own. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you're you're right. Putting his arm around Mickey. But I wouldn't call that an iconic moment. It was it's just a, it's a beautiful moment and it works for that moment in the movie. But I think the iconic moment is expansive. You know, it, it yeah. helps so much more. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, what can the moment when Adrian gets in the ring and, 
and the love is expressed the first yeah. time you hear them say they love each other. Yeah. Transcendent. Totally yeah, the, transcendent. My 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 only gripe with that is the freeze frame. You know, it, it just didn't need the freeze frame. No, it didn't. But yeah, no, you're absolutely right. But yeah. what I love about it is just Adrian trying to be heard. Yeah, yeah. Calling out to her lover. I mean, yeah. Rocky has the center of the ring. He has all the lights, all the attention. Yeah. And none of it means anything to him. The the only thing that he wants to see is her face. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, that really and is. She, yeah. yeah, and just coming through the crowd, this, this one face in a crowd um, to be allowed into the ring, to sneak into the ring. I, I believe her brother helps her to sneak into the ring. Okay. At, which is a quite a wonderful little moment of of magnanimity. Oh, I can never conjugate. I, yeah, but also the, the brilliant thing is the brilliant thing about Adrian's character is she fights. She she pushes herself through to do that, which is her character arc. She would never have done that at the beginning of the movie because she didn't believe in herself. And here she's going, you know, I'm going to push my way through because she has a self belief. So you know what I mean? It's just yeah, it's it's a great it's a great moment where he's waiting for her to arrive. Instead of usually we see so often the guy running to the girl in, in yeah. the road, you know. And I also think I have to give the direction a lot of credit for the final fight scene to have the drawn out rounds. I mean, the brutality is unlike anything in boxing. This is this does not exist outside of one iconic fight, Arturo Gaddy and Mickey Ward, that was a real Rocky at moments, but other than that, I mean, this just never happens, but who cares? It's a movie. Sure. Um, but the ways in which you see the ring card girls dressed up as the Statue of Liberty and yeah. the the montage of the final sequence, I just think is so elegantly woven in the different elements and the brutality and the back and forth and the way it's building and building and building to the underdog has to win this, right? For the great <laughs> bait and switch, of yeah. he does win the more important struggle, which is Adrian. The bigger yeah. prize is, is finding finding love. And as you say, like that's the this isn't a sports movie. It's it's a love story, and and uh, just packaged as a sports movie it works wonderfully. Well, um, you know, you yeah. just mentioned the editing there for the final sequence. It, the picture won best editing. You oh, know. well, yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, editing, editing is about the flow of information. And the flow of information is the emotional rhythm. And it reaches a fantastic climax. And as you said, that the, the fight is, is given space. You know, so, um, yeah. yeah. Wouldn't be good as editing award at all. Yeah, and I mean, just that basic premise of editing, of taking moments that should be slow and speeding them up and taking fast moments and slowing them down. You know, yeah. it... it plays with that with with just such care so last question um after this film it's dna what what films do you think have existed after it that are informed by this film what what is the you know legacy as far as its impact on film um you stumped me there i didn't see this question coming um it's DNA. Well, you know, I think we may have touched on it, you know, in terms of the way Rocky, Jaws and Star Wars and those movies came out 75, 76 and 77. 
And they steered Hollywood in a different direction in the 1980s, not only on their own, but because of, you know, um, a series of movies made by the uh, cinematic giants of that decade in the 70s. And um, one by one by one, they all made uh, um, box office flops culminating in, in Heaven's Gate. So then it, it changed enormously in the 1980s with, you know, um, very, very, no, I wouldn't say very, very commercial films because every film prior to that had been very, very commercial. The difference being in the 80s, the, the studios knew where the audience was. In the 70s, the, 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 the studios really didn't know um, what was going to hit. And that's why we had such a var wide variety of different types of movies were being made because they were willing to take a little chance on this picture and this picture and this picture, not knowing exactly which was going to hit. But once we get into the 1980s, we have the Rocky sequels, the Star Wars sequels, the Indiana Jones sequels, the Karate Kid, Rambo. And so the, the studios know exactly where the audience is. So I wouldn't, I don't know enough yet um, about the DNA of Rocky to say exactly that film in particular is specifically um, lives on in different films. But I would say part of the movement of Jaws, Star Wars, and Rocky, you can see it in replicated right across Back to the Future in a strange way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, for me, when I think about what it did for Stallone, I don't think I can think of a film offering the immediacy of you are now an A-lister after four seconds of seeing you, other than like Julia Roberts and Pretty Woman. Right, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And OK, now I got what you're saying. Yeah. And but the, the thing about Julia Roberts is she's been able to reinvent herself. She's played a variety of different characters. When, <laughs> she, when she appeared in Pretty Woman, whoever would have thought that she'd play Aaron Brockovich? Oh, yeah. no, no. She's a much better actress. But I yeah. I think it's kind of intriguing, as you were saying, that Stallone, I'm trying to think of another actor that had yeah. this kind of commercial, critical success. You're compared to the top filmmaking actor in history with Brando, who Ooh. did less with it beyond commercially yeah. cashing in, but yeah. artistically, I mean, other than other than Rambo, he's just a complete caricature. Like he's yeah. a joke. I, I think maybe there's one actor, <clears throat> and I'm going to hold off naming him for a second to build up a little bit of suspense. There's one actor who burst onto the scene and everybody instantly loved him and he played him he played that same character across many different performances but because of tragedy he wasn't able to develop a property that's michael j fox mm. you know um, but the thing is everybody loves michael j fox i've never met anybody anywhere in any theater in any part of the world and he talked about michael j fox but none of them has ever said no i don't like that guy <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. his likability is off the charts for sure I Absolutely. And his, for so many years, his, his career was on such a beautiful trajectory because he never played the wrong character badly. You know, he was perfectly cast. Secret of my success. Not a good picture by any, any, any stretch. But he, he nailed that character. Even in Doc Hollywood, he was fantastic in Doc Hollywood. You know, and I know he came from Family Ties. But Back to the Future, everything about him. But he's never played outside of that very, very narrow spectrum, but nobody blames him at all. We all love him for sticking to that very narrow spectrum. Yeah, I always thought it was interesting. The secret of my success and cocktail are basically the same fairy tale. <laughs> yes. Like, and there, it's a very bizarre fairy tale of New York. Yeah. <laughs> like, going to the city of making it. No, okay, well, this was great fun. Thanks so much, Stephen. Thank you.
yeah, look, Brins, these are always good fun. I'm, I'm glad. It gives me, you know, a good reason to go back and watch movies that I may have overlooked. Fat City being a perfect example and finding a little bit more Rocky than I was, than I originally expected. It was, it was a really, really great surprise. So look, I'm, I'm really enjoying these chats. They're great fun. Oh, me too. Me too. Um, okay, good stuff. Great. Brins, Terrific. Thanks. Take care. All right, likewise. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to No Happy Endings. It is produced by George Alarcon Swaby, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and is brought to you by Ring Magazine. Thanks for listening.